Channel Tribune, 20th of May, 2021. Billy Murphy, after 50 years, the truth at last. Last week, Israel launched a murderous onslaught in Gaza. In an unequal battle, they bombarded the little Palestinian state, 365 kilometers, the size of Louth with a two million population. Hundreds killed, men, women and children. Meanwhile, the world ignores the tragedy. Palestinians, it appears, don't matter. They suffer in silence. Fifty years ago in Belfast, the British Army launched a murderous onslaught on Billy Murphy. Again, in an unequal battle, they murdered 11 civilians. Again, the world stood by. Irish deaths apparently didn't matter either. Last week, the families of those murdered by the British Army almost 50 years ago trooped into the ICC near Lagansight for the coroner's report after an intensive investigation into the killings. Brothers, sisters, sons, daughters and grandchildren. The older ones were haggard, tired but defiant. The long years had passed since their loved ones were killed almost half a century ago. The families had campaigned tirelessly for many a day, but they were vilified by the army, state and media. Those killed names were besmirched in death. General Sir Mike Jackson, former Chief of General Staff, British Armed Forces, was the PR guy for the Paras at the time, and told the world's media that the army had killed gunmen in Bally Murphy. In his autobiography, Soldier, he doesn't even mention it. The gunmen they killed were a 48-year-old granny, three guys in their mid-40s, a priest, three teenagers and others, hardly the local IRA unit. I grew up close to Ballamurphy. It was the first new estate built after World War II to house the overcrowding of nationalists in the inner city, Lower Falls, Markets and Kerrykill. A sprawling estate of 600 houses with new kitchens and inside toilets. It was akin to moving from Sean McDermott Street to Ballymun. Both were the dreams of 50s and 60s architects, but through time would develop into tough, underdeveloped areas. Upwards of 12,000 families moved through Ballymurphy over 20 years. High unemployment and similar problems to Ballymun. Valley Murphy was built in an area between the White Rock and Springfield. It was mostly nationalist. On the opposite side of the Springfield was New Barnsley, Spring Martin and Highfield, which were predominantly loyalist. We lived a little further up the Springfield and Turf Lodge. In the 60s, there was little or no cutting-edge sectarianism. In fact, Mum used to send me to pay the rent at an office in the middle of the Highfield estate, and I never had any problems. Also, as young teenagers, we had more problems with other teenagers from Ballymurphy, as is the way with adolescents in large working-class housing estates the world over. A little anecdote from our youth was that if you were down the town at the pictures, you could get the last bus to Ballymurphy, and no way was the conductor going to come to the top deck looking for furs. Conflict or troubles, to use that quaint Irish epithet, came to Ballamurphy almost from day one. After August 69, families who had been burnt out of the Lower Falls or Ardoin 
move to stay with family and friends in Ballymurphy and other safer areas in West Belfast before being rehoused and the new estate's been built. At Easter 70, Ballymurphy hit the headlines for the first time. Tension had been rising in the area between young nationalists and the British Army, who had been in situ for about eight months at the time. Ballymurphy had high unemployment, especially amongst teenagers who left school from St Thomas's at 15 with no qualifications. This created frustration and then thrown into the situation are British soldiers who essentially were unemployed working class kids from England, Scotland and Wales. They too had left school at 15 but found an escape route from unemployment or jail by joining the army. Okay, they may have been seduced by colour ads and TV highlighting skiing trips in the Alps or mountaineering on Everest. Suddenly they find themselves patrolling Ballymurphy. As the great Billy Connolly observed, as laxatives go, this was something else. Of course it was inevitable that eventually young teenagers in Ballymurphy would clash with the young soldiers. A strange group of teenagers from outside your domain would cause tension and aggression. In a sense, that's the law of the jungle. If you add in the fact that these strangers were wearing the uniform of the British Army, then we were in a different ball game altogether. Northern Ireland was never a normal place. At the time, just 50 years old, a divided society, partition statelet not accepted by the minority nationalist community. Always in the background was the baggage of history. Just four years earlier, the Easter Rising had been celebrated by 20,000 marching along the balls behind the flag of the Republic. Just two years before that, in 64, the RUC had smashed into Republican election headquarters, pulled the tricolour down, which caused three days of riding. The undercurrent was always there. While the RUC had now been withdrawn from nationalist areas, became unarmed and the hated peace peasant disbanded. Into their footsteps came young guys from Easter House in Glasgow, Mossside in Manchester, Croydon in London, and every working class estate in the UK. Unknowns to these street kids from the wrong side of the tracks, they'd stepped into the wrong side of history in Valley Murphy. Initially tensions had risen when loyalists from Spring Martin clashed with youths from Valley Murphy. Then soldiers in the Henry Tiger, the local school they'd taken over as a base, invited local girls to a disco in the school barrack. Now, while a fairly innocuous event in a normal society, not so in Ballymurphy. It was an Irish city and Irish girls and they, they were Royal Scots soldiers. Admittedly, only a percentage of local girls took up the offer, the type attracted by a soldier's uniform. Most local girls refused and the ones who went dancing in the barracks soon became known as soldier lovers, found themselves with shaved heads and tired and feathered with a placard hung around their head with the epithet soldier lover for the world to see. Protests were organised outside the Henry Taggart which soon developed into a riot. Hundreds of youths would throw bricks and petrol bombs. The soldiers would respond with rubber bullets and CS gas. Then snatch guards squads would race out of the barrack into the milling crowd and grab anyone that could, they could who were then off to Crumlin Road jail. 
In the next two years, 1,500 were arrested for rioting and received a mandatory six months. This rioting went on for a week at Easter 70. Every night it became more intense, more rubber bullets, more gas, more petrol bombs, more injured and more off to the jail. BBC and RTE cameras were in situ and filmed it for a stunned audience throughout Belfast and on televisions in the Republic, the UK and indeed worldwide. The commentary reflected the change in events since August 69, when in theory the British Army had arrived to prevent a pogrom and nationalists. Now we were back in script. Nationalists on the one side and the British Army on the other. For us as teenagers on the streets, this appeared to be the natural order of things. We were in Ballymurphy every night right until the early hours, stones, bottles, petrol bombs, climbing over walls, through back gardens to avoid the snatch squads. The army brought in armoured cars and we built barricades to impede their path. Hand to hand fighting at times, the front line of the rioters fought a constant battle of wits with the soldiers. When the snatch squads raced towards us, we had to be twinkle-toed on our feet to escape their claws. As Billy Connolly observed once more, two guys been chased in the jungle by a tiger. As long as you had better runners than your mate, you'd be okay. So any of us who won the 100 meter race at school would always avoid capture. The rats went on for a week before everyone ran out of steam. Soldiers needed a break, so did we, and the girls wouldn't be putting on their makeup for the soldiers again. Leaving aside the facetious set of events that reality, the reality was the fledgling provisional IRA called a halt to proceedings. In fact, they didn't want it in the first place as they were using Valley Murphy to train new recruits, and the red and brought the army into the estate. So the riding came to an apt temporary end, but the day was set. British soldiers would never be welcome in Ballymurphy ever again. Sadly, within a year, they would take their own revenge on the people who had rejected them. On the 9th of August, 71, at 3am, British Army units raided houses throughout the six counties. At over 500 houses, 342 men were arrested and taken to interrogation centres. The army were working on lists compiled by the RUC special branch, which were slightly outdated. A lot of men lifted were old Republicans from the 40s and 50s, whose days of armed struggle were over. Civil rights activists and people's democracy students, and maybe a few IRA men. But the reality was the IRA had been alerted and most stayed in billets, safe houses, that night, and then were on the streets in the morning organising resistance. The next three days were the worst ever seen in Irish streets, 7,000 nationalists displaced. The whole nationalist community reacted in a way that shook Stormont. Riding took place all over the six counties. Massive gun battles between the army and the IRA. And in the midst of all this in Ballymurphy we had the slaughter of 11 of the innocent civilians by the British army. It was a few days of hell. Interestingly, another man who writes a weekly column for the Tribune was domiciled in West Belfast around the same time. While I was close to Ballymurphy on the Republican side of the future peace line, Reverend Canon Brand Smeaton was based in the Shankill on the Loyalist side of the city, 
for several years when times were tough. I've only met him a few times, but that was much later in the calm and peace of Donegal. But Brian had a great connection with Catholic priest Father Des Wilson, who lived in Spring Hill beside Ballymorphy and close to Spring Martin where the first clashes took place. Apparently both men would be in regular contract and try to defuse events or help in any way they could. Two men of great strength who weren't your average man of the cloth. Des Wilson fell out with the church and became a man of the people in Ballymurphy. Dubbed the Provo priest, the residents took him to their hearts. Even Mother Teresa came to visit him in Ballymurphy in 71. Brian himself, I'm sure, wouldn't mind me saying, wasn't your average Bible thumper but embraced the community in Donegal with an open agenda, which confused some local evangelical Presbyterians in Milford and Kilmack. Churches of all denominations would be better off with men like Brian and Des. Sadly, Father Des passed in 2019, age 95. Hopefully Brian is good and keeping safe in his new domicile in Dublin. Operation Demetrius began in the early hours of the 9th of August. The powers were sent into Ballamurphy. Over the next 48 hours, they wreaked havoc on a stunned community. 18 men locally were arrested in the initial swoops, taken to the various centres. On the streets, women banged binlets to warn of imminent arrival of the powers. Youths prepared petrol bombs and broke up paving stones for ammunition. In the background, the IRA took up position around the estate. On the loyalist Spring Martin overlooking Ballymurphy, crowds gathered. As darkness fell, the powers started firing into Ballymurphy. Robert Clark was shot in the back in open ground. Father Mullen went to help him, waving a white handkerchief. Ironic, as six months later, Bishop Daly did the same thing in Derry. As Mullen gave Clark the last rites, he was shot twice by a soldier. An eyewitness lying in a shelter close by said Father Mullen prayed in English and Latin for ten minutes before he died. All the time the powers were firing into the estate. Another priest, Father McGovern, phoned the army, said he was going to help Father Mullen. The soldier said, stay where you are, you'll be shot. Francis Quinn, 19, who was also trying to help Clark, was then shot in the head and died instantly. A few minutes after this, as a crowd had gathered outside the Henry Tiger to protest, the powers opened fire and 48-year-old Granny Joan Connolly was shot dead. Also killed was 20-year-old Noel Phillips, who, like myself, worked in a city centre pub. Five wounded men were thrown into an army Saracen and brought to the Henry Tiger, beaten with battens. Two of them, Joseph Murphy and Danny Tiger, died of their wounds later. Taggart had been shot 14 times. Murphy was also shot again with suggestions it was an execution. His body exhumed in 2015 and a second single bullet found in it. The next day the rioting continued and the barricades erected. A soldier driving an army truck dismantling a barricade shot dead Edward Doherty, 28. In the soldier's statement, he said he emptied a full magazine at the target. The red continued throughout the night, with firing coming from Loyalists and Spring Martin as well. Many residents in Ballymurphy headed to Donegal and Dock for safety. 
following day, John Lafferty, 20, who had sent his wife and daughter to County Down for safety, was shot dead along with Joseph Carr, 43, killed by members of one para who would kill again on Bloody Sunday. The same day, John McCurr, 49, was working at repairs to Corpus Christi Chapel when he was shot and died a week later. The following day, Paddy McCarthy, 44, died after a para patrol stopped him stuck a gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. He died later of a heart attack. Eleven innocent civilians dead after a murderous few days by the Paris and Valley Murphy. The unfortunate fact is that except for those really interested in what was happening in the six counties, their deaths would soon be forgotten in the overall context of civil disobedience, armed struggle, British repression, loyalist sectarian killings and especially in the Republic the D4 media fell under a cohort like Owen Harris aka Barbara Penn and their links to the Workers Party producing a slant in Northern reporting which was far removed from reality All the civilians were killed within three days of the introduction of internment on the 9th of August all Irish, Catholic, from Bally Murphy, not one involved in the IRA. All innocent civilians murdered in cold blood and broad daylight on the Belfast streets. All had their reputations tarnished by the British. It took nearly 50 years, but finally last week they were vindicated. With hindsight, if their deaths hadn't have been covered up at the time, the deaths on Bloody Sunday by the Paris almost six months later might have been averted. It wasn't to be and their families had to grieve for a lifetime before it was finally admitted that the guilty ones were the Paris. They had murdered 11 in Ballamurphy and 14 in Derry. The times that were in it allowed the British to perpetuate a litany of lies which was the greatest injustice of all. The effect of internment and the killings are significant. In the seven months of 71 before internment, 34 people were killed. During the four months afterwards, 140 were killed. The deaths of those in Ballamurphy were soon forgotten about in the general mayhem, except of course to their families who would suffer in silence for so many years afterwards. They also had to live with the knowledge that the British Army had said their loved ones were gunmen, similar to Bloody Sunday. The main difference is that day in Derry was shown on television and harder for the lies to stick. The Ballamurphy families always knew that their fathers, wife, brothers, sons were all innocent and definitely not gunmen. But they lived in a strong Republican area and over the decades, Ballamurphy would become so well known as a battleground between the army and the IRA. Many more deaths would happen before the killing ended in the 90s. But in the background, there's always left doubt in the Republic in the UK. However outlandish the idea was that maybe the 48-year-old granny or the priest's father Mullen were terrorists. It would take 50 years for the truth to be outed. The inspiring efforts of the families of those who died at Hillsborough in 89 and on Bloody Sunday in 72 inspired the families of those killed in Ballymore. Those who died in both tragedies were vilified by the police and army, 
Lies told, blame put on the innocent. But the bloody Sunday campaign and the Hillsborough campaign kept the issue in the public eye. And in 2012, the bloody Sunday victims were proven innocent by Lord Saville after a 12-year inquiry. He stated the killings by the Paras were unjustified and all were unarmed. And the Paras had put forward false accounts of what happened. British PM David Cameron made a public apology to the families on an emotional day at the Guildhall in Derry, the location for the march in 72, which never reached its destination. It had taken 40 years. In 2016, the Hillsborough victims were exonerated and the coroner ruled they had been unlawfully killed. It had taken 27 years. Last week, the victims of the Ballamorphy massacre were finally cleared. Mrs Justice Siobhan Keegan, delivering the verdict at the ICC in Laganside, said the shootings had been a violation of Article 2 of the European Convention on Human Rights, the right to life protected by law. The British PM Boris Johnson also apologised unreservedly on behalf of the UK government. We still await an apology from General Mike Jackson, former commander of the Parachute Regiment. Nevertheless, while it has taken 50 years for the truth to come out, the Ballymurphy victims were proven innocent at last. Second of April, 2021, Chicanal Tribune. A glass of ours was raised to toast a queen. For most people, the Greek island of Corfu is synonymous with holidays in the sun. For younger kids, the 1830 club, Cavos or Corfu Old Town, the centre of mad summers where many Irish and Brits found a rite of passage to life, April leaving cert. Holiday romances, sun, sea and sex, gallons of Greek beer and uzu, beaches to die for along a Mediterranean coastline. In historical mythology, it has it that Adeus landed on the island after being shipwrecked in the 8th century. Corfu resisted Ottoman occupation and like much of mainland Greece, Judeus Phoenician links which gave it an Italian feel. And of course our near neighbours buried his tentacles in Corfu for 50 years, between 1815 and 64. Alongside Malta, 1800 to 1964, Cyprus, 1878-1960, Crete, 1898-09, Egypt, Libya, the Ionian Islands, Sicily and of course Gibraltar in 1704-to the present day. The strategic interests in the Mediterranean are so clear to see. On the Ionian island of Corfu, a child born in 1921, almost 100 years ago, was buried last month. Colloquially known here as Phil the Greek, the child was christened Philippus. He was no ordinary little Mediterranean kid, but a member of the Greek royal family. His parents were Prince Andrew of Greece and Princess Alice of Battenberg. They were turbulent times, World War I just finished, his granddad King George I of Greece assassinated in 1913, his dad sent into military exile in 
1922 after Greece was defeated by Turkey in a deadly conflict. The rest of the royal family fled with the help of King George V, who was a full cousin of Filippo's, and all related to Tsar Nicholas II who got the chop in the Russian Revolution a few years previously. Sure, they were all related to each other, the blood tight lines intermingled with probable family incest right throughout the centuries, creating a European dynasty to control an empire. What's it all about? Living in Ireland we know all about royalty or monarchy as at one time our wee country was part of their domain. Kings and queens and all that bullshit which has descended down through the centuries. An absolute sham of a system where certain royal families controlled countries throughout Europe. They believed that it was a God-given right that they should rule over the plebs, that somehow they were bestowed with this wealth and power from feudal times. Europe was the epicentre of monarchy, but Japan had their own version. Indeed, I think if we really examine every society in the planet, there's always been some form of ruling elite. Persian, Han, Arab, Caliphate, Mongols, Roman, Ottoman, Spanish, Russian and British empires. Though in the thousand year reign, almost a century of communism, the Vatican. And we also have our own contribution to royalty in Gaelic Ireland. The chieftains who held power in each province, the clans and the Breton law. And locally we had the chieftains of Ulster crowned at doing well up till 1603. I suppose an event a bit like a royal wedding or funeral for that matter in London in the modern era. Is it the nature of the human race that they have a need to be ruled by an elite? The law of the jungle, the gang mentality in the streets, the rich and powerful during the Celtic Tiger. The common denominator of all is a desire to have power and wealth for an elite at the expense of the working class. If you look at all elites in society throughout history, they have the one common denominator. Their greed for wealth was a driving force, and they had the power to enforce it through military force. All politicians in the modern area have that same common denominator. They have power and have accumulated great wealth. The history of European monarchy is a history of land grabbing, unbelievable accumulation of unearned wealth. Wars, family dynasties, and breeding, which is all the royal families in Europe, to create this undemocratic entity. The most amazing aspect of monarchy is that they believe they are not subject to any earthly authority, that their right to rule comes from the will of God. What absolute garbage! This is what makes modern royalty in the 21st century an archaic, outdated concept, but what gives them a feeling of being above mere mortals. Nowhere is it more prevalent but in the British monarchy, and we have witnessed it again last month with the funeral of Phil the Greek. Okay, it was a powered back version of the full state funeral which we were spared, despite BBC and Virgin and Lapdog D4 media outlets trying to make COVID lockdown even worse, with every news program giving lavish prominence to the death of the 99 year old who married a 17 year old who not unusually turned out to be his full cousin. Sure, they shared their great-great-grandmother, Victoria, the famine queen. Keep it in the family, guys. It's not the Irish way to say a bad word after the passing of anyone, even an enemy. 
We'd always share our commiserations with any family who have suffered bereavement. The Irish Wake is a powerful statement of supporting a family in grief, although not sure it would be the same in Buckingham Palace. But we've seen a different approach from Britain and the US to death of an opponent. For years during the conflict in the Six Counties, the RUC and British Army attacked Republican funerals. It was a disgusting approach never reciprocated on an RUC or Army funeral. Can you imagine the media headlines of it had happened? But it's not an Irish way. American presidents also celebrated the killing of Bin Laden and other jihadi. Israel celebrates killing Palestinians, three of the most powerful nations on earth, that hardly shows humanity and decency. In the Republic still today we have an amazing amount of royal naval gazers, a minority it has to be said but they exist and when a royal wedding arrives the brain dead are wheeled out in the media waving their little union jacks, saying how wonderful the newly wed royal couple look, resplendent in their finery and carriage. It's funny but I always thought it looked like a traveller wedding in Rathkeel or confirmation in tune with a Cinderella coach three ugly sisters, Camilla, Anne and Fergie, the big pink blancmange dresses and Bonnie Prince Charlie, the coachman, never the king. I've thought about this for a long time. I mean, what would make Irish people take any interest in a foreign monarchy? We got rid of that nonsense in 1921. It took several years of death and destruction before physically ending centuries of being lapdogs to the British crown. When we created a republic in 49, that should have been the end of it. A republic doesn't have a monarchy, we have an elected president, and one especially now who would have nothing to do with the Shama monarchy. But while we physically ended foreign rule and monarchy, it seemingly was still inside some Anglophile brain cells. A certain type of person who has a fondness for all things British. They're a strange creature, with a bit like Russians harping back to the rule of the Tsars. Or Germans praising the Third Reich and Hitler. Why any Irish person has any empathy for British royalty is beyond comprehension. Of course, there's always a cohort or just attracted to celebrity and have no interest in the actual monarchy, but more to do with what dress Kate or Meghan was wearing, or indeed Diana before them. Classic case of the commoner marrying the prince, the frog, and the princess classic Cinderella tale, all the extravagance, pop and glamour of the occasion. Many people are attracted to that stuff and it's not just royalty. Hollywood, Bollywood, Cannes, film stars, models, the red carpet. Some people just love all that nonsense. It's a taste for celebrity status, which pervades the ordinary punter with a boring life. And viewing it live in Sky or NBC allows a little light and in other ways dull life. But you know, sure, there's nothing wrong with it for some, I suppose. It's music, all oh, there's golf, even more horse racing for many, the GA, swimming, running. For billions, it's the beautiful game. Whatever your poison, as they say, it's a break from the monotony of everyday life. Work without play is a boring life, so I suppose a little escapism is no harm. But we have to draw the line in the Royal Naval Gazers who are nothing more than West Brits. Human nature is always at leaders and followers, elites and plebs, kings and knaves, politicians and the electorate, businessmen and workers, wealthy and poor, 
upper class, working class. Even during the communist years when we thought that everyone was equal, it turned out there was an elite in the end of plagues. The dream to overthrow capitalism by a fairer system failed. As it's human nature, the elite should always monopolize wealth and power at the expense of the workers. And the most disgusting aspect is that it's usually inherited wealth from dubious sources, whether you're a millionaire, a businessman, or a Monarchy has been with us for a long, long time. Forms of it from earlier times, around the 12th century, England, Spain, France, Portugal, all morphed into this undemocratic form of leadership. We of course had the Roman Empire, which set a standard for the world to follow, emperors rather than monarchs. In the Middle Ages, royalty were rulers of people rather than territory. They were city-states then, before they morphed into nation-states in the 16th century. Monarchy assumed titles and had a coronation. They felt a dynastic right to the throne, to rule the plebs. How they found themselves in this position is a mystery. A family dynasty granted in their view by God. A divine power which they could claim forever. If ever there was a historical bullshit, here we have it. Kings and queens, knights, counts, dukes, noblemen. They represented the elite who embraced wealth religion, status, power. By the 15th and 16th century, the modern world was beginning to take shape after the days of the Renaissance, Reformation, and then Enlightenment. Monarchy, church, and state morphed into the new nation-states in a time parliamentary democracy would take its place. But the most amazing aspect was these unelected parasites who had inherited the titles from a higher authority kept their place in society until in the case of the Roman Russian Revolution and the overthrow of the Tsar dynasty and execution of the Romanovs and indeed Little Ireland when we shafted the monarchy after independence and weren't the Battenbergs lucky cattle brew and Liam Lynch didn't take power after the Civil War. So we come to the modern era. I was born in 53 and old Lizzie at her coronation. I'm sure our wee street in Moncollier and Tigers Bay was covered in butchers' aprons and street parties held. Well, technically, I might have been one of her citizens in the illegal state that the soup was scarce in our house. And to paraphrase Seamus Heaney, no glass was ever raised to a queen. She married Phil and they had a good innings, together 70 years till his passing last month. She's the longest reigning monarch in the world. 67 years and counting. Bonnie Prince Charlie's been waiting for the succession since he was a kid. Now he's an old fogey dithering about Balmore with Camilla shooting pheasant and catching frogs. It's unlikely he'll ever be King Charles V. The monarchy has been in vogue in the UK since the 10th century. Magna Carta reduced the power of it. Then in the middle of the 1600s, Cromwell led a parliamentary challenge to the monarchy. In effect, Cromwell could be classed as the first Republican, however unpalatable that might be to Irish people. In the 1500s, Henry VIII embraced the Reformation, made himself head of the Church of England, changing the country to Protestant rather than Catholic. Ironically, all because he wanted a divorce from a queen who couldn't give him an heir, and Rome wouldn't allow it. After Culloden, Scotland and England were joined in an active union in 1707, 
Then after the 98 rebellion, Ireland joined to England in 1801. Along with Wales became the United Kingdom, ruled over by a monarchy who at one stage were the head of the empire and unbelievably one quarter of the world landmass. The thorny question of what the monarchy actually do is always a divisive issue. For most of us that don't work, sponge of the state, acquire massive amounts of wealth from God knows where, swan around the world on a big boat visiting the natives in the former empire. They also have more staycation weekends away in Balmoral, shooting deer and catching salmon that Dermot Desmond has playing golf in a sandy lane resort in Barbados. Back in 77, Queenie visited Belfast for the first time since the conflict started. Her loyal subjects welcomed her at a garden party at Hillsborough. With 10 miles away, 20,000 marched down the falls to let her know, Lizzie Windsor, you're not our queen. Amid rioting, shooting, bombing. But as Noel McBride, a great dairy comedian who used to come to the Milford in the 80s, used to say, there was no trouble. In the factories, pubs, shops and schools, leaflets were handed out with a photo of a wee old cleaning woman called Elizabeth Queen. We earned £20 a week portion of ours, while another photo of Queen Elizabeth who earned £2 million a year, waving to her subjects. But to be fair, old Lizzie does a wee bit in comparison to Charlie who studies wildlife and who's part of the horses set, Andrew who runs an escort agency, and recently deceased Phil who had a fine line and racist, xenophobic gaffes which embarrassed the Queen especially when she shook hands with revolutionaries like Mandela and Martin McGuinness. And Phil adopted the stiff upper lip and checked out later what part of Britain was Ireland in. Elizabeth was nominal head of the Commonwealth, has a song named after and you won't get into Westminster unless you swear an oath to her, which most Republicans would consider the Fifth Amendment and wouldn't even consider it. She delegates government functions to her PM and cabinet legislative and executive power. Her perfect examples for judicial and church of an independence. She appoints the PM and usually doesn't interfere. Unlike William IV in 1834, or Cromwell who was beheaded in 1650. And of course she hands out an annual honours award to every plonker who would prostrate himself in front of her and her big sword. So to be fair, she hasn't been unemployed all her life and like Philip, Charles, Andrew, Anne, William and Harry. I suppose a 90-year-old woman who stuck with Phil all those years has to be admired. Also been the first British monarch to visit Ireland since independence and paying respects to the Garden of Remembrance and uttering a couple of folk as Gilga at a dinner in Dublin Castle with President Megan Lees meeting as equals in the former British headquarters in colonial times. In an Irish context, the years of the Williamite Wars have been, would have the most relevance. A Dutch king fighting a Scottish king for an English throne on Irish soil. Along with the plantation, the outcome would have to deliver partition 230 years later, and we still have to live with the ramifications 100 years later. We live in a republic and the majority of our country and despite what Boris said last week, there'll be a referendum in the near future to get rid of the monarchy once and for all. What the Royal Naval Gazers will do then will be interesting. 
Maybe they'll become like the Super League club she wanted to be footballing royalty, but they ended up pathetic and greedy. But sure, they can always look on the bright side of